Hi and welcome to the Courageous Mama podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Stanameros. If you're wanting to raise emotionally healthy children and explore some fresh ways to do that, you've come to the right place. I had a really interesting conversation with a friend of mine, George Orton, recently on my lovely new porch. Check out my Instagram, the porch is well worth a gander. It was my lockdown project. We were chatting about drugs. Her eldest was about to start secondary school and she wanted to know if I had any advice for her as to how to educate her child about drugs without terrifying him. And she also wanted to know how to educate herself about today's availability. In fact, she had some brilliant questions. Charlie, my 17-year-old, passed by in the middle of our conversation and so she also asked him some great questions too and we both picked up on the fact that school, in Charlie's experience, and actually it would be the same of my other children, largely go down the try a drug and you'll die route. And of course, Charlie's reaction to that was, but I've got some friends who've tried it and they're still alive. So what we say as parents is of paramount importance In fact, I'd say that about everything. I know that the schools have to cover ground as there are some homes that just aren't having those important conversations. But for those of you that are, don't underestimate your input and reactions and attitudes as your children form their values and their habits around the stickier conversations of life. So on that basis, I thought it's time for Tony France on the podcast. What better person for George to pose her questions to? So who's Tony France? Well, I first came across Tony when my husband and I used to run the How to Drug Proof Your Kids course in Cheltenham. And that was about 14 years ago. He'd come along to the last session and answer all the burning questions of the parents who had done the course. He's not your archetypal speaker, and I'm sure he'd forgive me for saying he's more your kind of rough and ready biker type. He's got more practice than theory, and he's been working with youth and drug problems for over 30 years, 20 of those in the drugs and addiction services. Tony is a psychotherapist, and he's developed services here in Gloucestershire for young people, including starting the charity InfoBuzz. He's written courses on substance abuse for charities and for organisations here in the UK and for the British Council working abroad in Europe, in Canada and in Africa. And as director of Trauma Action Group, his passion is around understanding and responding to trauma, which is so often at the basis of addiction. In fact, just before lockdown, he was due to go off to Sudan to work with and rehabilitate child soldiers. Much of the ADD and spectrum disorders that we see today can also be linked to trauma. But that's another whole podcast and we will get to that. Do you know, I never run out of questions for Tony, poor man. But today I thought I'd hand the microphone over. It's never too soon to be thinking about how to inform and respond around the area of drugs. But it's hard for me to go back to that place of launching my first child into teenhood now that I'm on my fifth. So I thought the questions should be posed by someone who's got them on the forefront of their mind. So that's why I asked George to come along with me today. She's a great communicator and I often find she's asking the questions that other people are thinking. So here's a conversation between George and Tony. 
I've got an 11 year old and I've got an 8 year old um, both boys and we've just started the whole secondary school process and it's having the conversation around drugs I grew up with a mum and dad who were you know party goers in the swinging 60s but a mum who is very very anti-drugs rightly so and who always said to me, if I find out that you've taken drugs, I will chop both your hands off. I, or I would go to prison to protect you if I found out, you know, what, whatever I needed mm. to do. So I grew up very much with that. And my mum had always told me a story about their best friends who ended up, my, my mum and dad's best friends, who ended up taking a drug overdose. And visiting them in a rehab centre is what it would be called now. In the 60s, I don't know. But she told me that when she went in to see them, both of them were in beds that were like cots. And they were both sort of stood on the side with just couldn't control their saliva. And both of them passed away. And I've grown up with this mental image. I also grew up in the 80s and 90s where HIV was massively prevalent. So you'd see the adverts on the telly. Do you remember the big tombstone with about HIV, needles, etc.? So it was very much drummed into me. So... Drugs now seems to be so diluted from what it was when I was growing up. For be- what, the message is diluted? Yeah, or, or yeah. the, the message, drugs? and because they're so much more accessible, I feel. Now, is that because I grew up with a passion for horses and a hobby and I wasn't hanging around in a town till with friends that were doing it? Is it because I was taken away from having any accessibility? I just used to think of drugs as heroin, I used to go to to clubs, see people taking ease and speed. But what frightens me now is you've got drugs looking like sweets. How do you educate your child without terrifying them? If they do have a puff of a joint, to know that they're not going to die, but they could be on a slippery slope. I find the balance of the drugs talk really difficult. Okay. Um... The first part is honesty. Yeah. You know, the, the, you, you can't be honesty when to, when talking to kids. It's just really, really important that we're we're transparent uh, about those things. I think there are there's a greater variety of drugs available now. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, in the eighties, you talked about the the HIV yeah. and uh, seemed to be all around me. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, nineteen eighty six. I was uh, I was known as Spike on a bike. I used to run needle exchange off the back of a motorcycle up from here down up into the Welsh valleys. With the advent of HIV, it was about it's about ensuring that people could inject safely with clean equipment. But also, sort of late eighties. Well, no, mid eighties. I suppose you also had the whole. Grange Hill Just Say No campaign, which in the wake of the Just Say No campaign, we saw the greatest rise and advent of youth drug use we have ever seen to this day. So, you know, in terms of those those public health messages that we put out, the Just Say No, you know, one, one go and it'll kill you or whatever it was, actually it had the opposite effect. Largely because pe- it, that wasn't true of people's experience. People were saying, well, I know people have taken drugs and they're not dead. A bit later, we had the whole Leah Betts campaign, um, one pill and it can kill you, when actually it wasn't the ecstasy that killed Leah. Uh, you know, it yeah. was an incredibly tragic event, mm-hmm. but she died from the amount of water she was made to drink because somebody had given her poor advice around, around water. And, 
didn't tell them that ecstasy is also an antidiuretic, so it prevents you from passing water. So the water builds up, dilutes into the bloodstream, and the brain swells, and that's that's what you know caused the tragedy. So we've got to be really careful about horror messages yeah because they're not going to get through yeah i think there is a generation your generation and and mine that there was uh it was still possible that we took on i suppose introjects from our parents messages from our parents yeah that we we bring with us and live in everyday life not so much now the introjects still exist just not so much around drugs i think you know drug use is less and certainly I've been involved in, in working with children, young people and families and addictions for well over 30 years now. There's far less drug use in young people now, uh, in and around youth culture. The biggest risk, without any shadow of a doubt to young people, is how young and how often. Yeah. So it's, it's the age of onset is a significant predictor for problematic drug use in later life. So the vast majority of young people that try drugs, and at its height we were talking about over 50%, we're probably now thinking about 30%, so it's gone down significantly, that will try an illegal drug before they're 18. The vast majority of those will try cannabis. Some of them will be sick and never do it again. Some of them will like it and do it for a while, Mm. and some of them won't like it at all, as with a lot of of experience of, of psychoactive substances. So I think there does have to be an honesty about drugs. There's legal implications. If you're using something that is illegal, that can have a huge impact on your career, depending on what you want to do, or your travel, depending on where you want to go. The reality is that the potential sentence and fine for supplying cannabis is greater than the sentence for making and distributing child pornography. It's the law. Mm-hmm. It is the way it is. Yeah. There's also, I suppose, thinking about gateway. Well, if you start on this, you might end up on that. Yeah, I, I'm worried that, you know, they have that first joint at a party and then they have more, and a lot of it's peer group pressure related, you know, try a bit of this. Try, and then I, I never want it to be a contentious issue at home where Max feels he can't tell me anything that he's taken or he's smoked because he's too worried about my reaction, but actually it starts to manifest into something that he does more. It's such a big area of knowing how to how yeah. to handle it or whether you're the kind of mum that's like, yeah, well, I tried it once as well and, <laughs> or, you know, oh, it's fine or it's a really difficult balance. You know, yeah. I'm not there yeah. to be their best friend. I'm there to be no, their, their mum. And, Absolutely. you know... And I think, you know, when you first try a spliff? Yeah. Don't tell your mum. Really? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on, you exactly. know? You don't... Yeah. They're not going to tell you when they try. If yeah. they try something, um, they're not going to tell you. All right? Um, yeah. However, what you do want is if things start to get out of hand for them, you want them to be able to come to you and say, mum, I'm in trouble. Yeah? Absolutely. So it's... So... Yeah. Y- y- they're not going to tell you if they try or not because no. that's part of adolescence. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. if it goes okay, you're definitely not going to tell your mum. Yeah. So, yeah. but you do want a relationship that says, you know, if you're in trouble, whatever's going on and things are getting difficult, you can talk to me about it and I'm not going to judge you. Yeah. And I'm not going to make your life difficult because of it. And I would always want to help yeah. no matter what. I mean, 
within this chat, I've brought drugs as my forefront, thinking it's the biggest thing. Yeah, probably not. But I was just going to say, in the scheme of things and where we're at now, how does that sit against alcohol or any other... Is there anything that's actually more of a problem than drug related issues that you have to deal with i think professionally i mean i think alcohol's always been a, been a bigger issue than drugs yeah always yeah. it's been a bigger issue than drugs are you seeing um, that more in children of a certain age i think we saw a culture change in in alcohol use we see a lot more preloading you know drinking before you go out and then because alcohol's become so expensive yeah. we saw a lot of young people being excluded from social drinking environments it was a real big push not letting underages in and all the rest, mm. which at one level is absolutely right. That's the law. However, the assumption that if they can't go into the pub, they won't drink is a, is a false assumption. Mm. So what we then have is young people drinking half bottles of vodka in the bottom of the churchyard where they're not going to be found without any adult supervision. Whereas if they are in an adult-orientated yeah. environment, they're far more likely to manage and control their behaviour. So do I think that alcohol is a problem for young people? Yeah, absolutely it is. More so or less so than before? No, I think we saw a, a peak in alcohol problems with young people probably in the 90s and it's probably stayed somewhere level. What do I worry about with young people? I worry about their mental health, largely, probably more than anything else. And, and maybe that's the level of screen time that they have. That's and, interesting. You know, I, I think perhaps the level of screen time... I think anxiety, mental health, depression, mood instability, and I've got all kinds of hypotheses about why that might be true, mm. but we're certainly seeing significant increases of young people coming forward asking for support around their mental health. Has um, that been more prolific during lockdown, this last 10-month period, would um, you say? I ran a crisis service over, over lockdown, I was yeah. commissioned to run one, and... Yeah, I've seen all kinds of real, real difficulties, especially where children have already had a difficult life or challenging life experiences. And for whatever reasons, parents separating, domestic violence, parental substance misuse, they've experienced early neglect and difficulty. I think what lockdown did was it recreated their core conditions for trauma. So conditions for trauma are that something's not expected, that you're unprepared and that you're overwhelmed and unable to do anything about it. Mm. And, and lockdown did that, recreated those conditions which triggered very early experiences of, of, of trauma and terror for, for many of those. Yeah. And child on parent violence. Yeah, I mean, I've seen significant amounts of that, um, which you could put, you know, I would put into... I suppose, into the realm of mental health. Uh, yeah, Rather absolutely. than anything else. Yeah. And I suppose just seeing children dealing with the likes of anxiety and uh, children that maybe have not experienced any sort of direct trauma, but are, yeah. you know, anxiety-led for yeah. whatever reason. Yes. You know, sort of seeing an increase of this. And would you say it's those children that have had those experiences that are, are, are more likely then to go down the drug drink route. Oh, definitely. But can, do you feel you can stop them from doing that with what you do? <laughs> do they take on board your advice is what I'm trying to say? Or are they hell-bent on getting a sense of freedom, whether it's smoking, drugs, taking narcotics, whatever? Can, can you help those kids? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and I suppose there are various different phases in those things. There are yeah. a lot of them that will try drugs and, and drinking too much and, and, you know, those those kind of things who will never experience any problems. Mm. And you'll probably never know until they're in their 30s, sat around the Christmas table saying, of course I did, Mum, you know. Yes. Um, and actually you'll never really have known anything about it because it will have been non-problematic. I think the problem happened, the problems tend to happen when a bit of that kind of perfect storm comes together mm. where they're feeling vulnerable perhaps they've had a bit of a relationship breakdown their friendships are changing so they're looking to find people like me in yes. inverted commas um and so yeah absolutely and i think and, and the other thing you mentioned about kind of anxiety or depression do you know are young people likely to self-medicate for those rather than medicate absolutely we have a society that promotes medication yeah. in 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 challenges and difficulty and is there a real difference between getting something from big pharma from your gp to smoking a spliff so as you can sleep at night mm. they are both problematic <laughs> for yeah. some people so it's about when it happens for people it's the circumstances there are times in every one of our lives when we are more vulnerable to um should we call them self-destructive behaviors than others yeah. So when we lose our sense of community, when we when we lose our sense of autonomy, and that's huge for young people because they're growing into their sense of autonomy mm. and their need to make their own choices. When we don't feel emotionally connected to others. As young people enter adolescence, they're neurologically driven to separate from parents. And the whole kind of attachment theory that... You know, we are neurologically driven to separate and seek attachments in our peers. And where that becomes troublesome or difficult or we don't feel very competent, then often we find ourselves in groups of peers that perhaps are different to those that our parents will want us to be involved yeah. with. So I think, yeah, any one of us could be vulnerable. Yeah, And whether that's self-harm, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, any of those things really. I'm just going to interrupt the podcast to say it's Christmas coming up. What a great gift it would be to give a friend of yours who's a parent a gift of a book about parenting. Not a bossy, opinionated book, but a really beautiful, fully illustrated, hardback book on the essential tools of parenting. And it's at a discounted price for you, my listener. Pop and have a look at it on my blog. The link's in the show notes. And now back to our conversation. Self-harm, obviously, is massively prevalent at the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard horror stories at various schools with, with self-harm. Do you have to deal with a lot of that, you know, aside mm -hmm. from the drugs? Yeah, and yeah. The drink as oh, well? I see far more of that than I do with the drugs there these days. There you go. And so that's really interesting. So is, is that driven, would you say, from childhood trauma? It or are you seeing be. a copycat thing that happens? Yes and yeah. no, I suppose... You know, we do see anxiety chains. So when we see, you know, youth suicide, for instance, we quite often see a cluster of that where there will be what we call an anxiety chain between people that have been not copycatting, but but really becoming enmeshed in each other's yeah. emotional lives. The kind of chicken scratches and stuff. The copycat probably happens at that level, but not so much at the serious yeah. the, and boys and girls are very different. Boys will use drug, drugs and drink to self-harm. Girls are largely more likely to be self-injurious in different ways. Of course, uh, self-harm has such a big umbrella. It does. I, when I think of self-harm, I think of someone taking a razor blade. But right, actually, you're thinking it's about such a, cutting. I'm thinking yeah, of cutting, yeah. but of course, 
all of itself harm, yes. isn't it? Drug abuse, drink, yeah. Yes. So that it, it's a ma- I had never thought of it in that way before. And so we would, yeah, absolutely. So self harm would be the umbrella term that yeah. we would use for yeah. self destructive behaviours. For one of another yeah. word, you know, we might talk about self injurious for people who cut. We might talk about self poisoning for people who drink bleach or whatever it is, or swallow batteries or. Um, or those kind of things. So that there will be different ways, and those are gender-driven to some degree, not yeah. hugely, but they are they are gender-driven to some degree. Yeah. Just going back to drugs, you know, I don't feel I'm educated. I try to be, and I see things on social media about all these new drugs that are out there. You know, when I was younger, it was kind of heroin, you know, weed, like I said to you, pills, etc., now there seems to be so much and how do you keep a tab on what is coming in or what they could be offered i find it really overwhelming okay i think there's a couple of things one is the stereotype of the dodgy geezer on the on the corner of a street with a dark hoodie kind of offering things to kids as they go by only happens in films all right, <laughs> it really doesn't happen. Um, most drugs are got through um, social networks, so they're not traditional dealers. Somebody will have an older brother who smokes weed, and he'll get him a bag, and they'll share it between them. So, so they, yeah, those kind of stereotypical images of of yeah. drug pushers and peddlers and and all that language that we use that were, were associated with that, largely. Um, yeah, largely don't exist. Um, they do, I suppose, on some what we might call front lines or some inner city areas. But even then, it would only be people you know. You'd never be, you'd never sell drugs to somebody you don't know, because they're only going to go home and tell their mum, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, you're not going to stop a young lad in there and say, "Oh, do you want to buy some gear?" Mm. Because they're going to go home and tell their parents. And then, so it's just like you know, it's too high risk as a drug dealer. You only sell to people that you know. Um, because it just doesn't make good business sense otherwise. Mm. Um, the other thing is drug dealers will always, well, you know, and they do exist, will largely try to sell the best quality gear that they can. Because they want you to come back exactly. and buy more. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the same as any other commerce mm. in some ways. You know, I mean, all, all those old stories about brick dust and vim and... and horse tranquilizers. Yeah, yeah. Well, horse tranquilizers, no, they're all right. That's cool. Um <laughs> Ketamine works, you know. Right, so that's, is that what it is? <laughs> that's ketamine, right, yeah. Right, okay, okay. I mean, it's not only, I mean, again, it's not only a horse tranquilizer. Um, it's used in the military to stop the onset of shock, so all soldiers that are deployed would always have ketamine in their webbing. It's also used as paediatric anaesthetic, but it is also used in horses as an anaesthetic. Mm. Ketamine was, was popular for a while. I haven't heard about it a lot. It's still around, but George, it, it's... you're into horses. Have you tried yeah. <laughs> trying to keep that on the low now. That's why I went, is it? It's just, as a mum, I just find it a really frightening, I I don't know why I'm so passionate about it. I think it's because drugs are so accessible. Whereas um, I felt that when I was growing, I mean, we went to parties and there was certainly weed on offer, Mm. you know, people smoking joints all that kind of stuff and i know people now in adulthood who will smoke marijuana for medicinal purposes you know well i know um, people who do it for fun well, alone the medicine absolutely <laughs> absolutely absolutely but it's that fine line 
there's a fine line, isn't there, of smoking it to then progressing and it and then it becomes a chemical drug and actually it's the chemical drugs that okay. frighten me i think okay. i think that's what so there's there's no ev- well okay the evidence around progression or gateway theory mm. this idea of how you progress from one substance to another the biggest gateway drug is cigarettes without any shadow of a doubt that's the number one gateway drug is cigarettes so wow. if you okay. smoke cigarettes you are far more likely to try cannabis than if you don't and most people who try an illegal drug try cannabis so um so cigarettes is definitely and and actually i mean we're seeing what less than six percent of teenagers now smoke cigarettes so amazing you know so so we're talking about a very low risk group in lots of ways now considering um you know what figures were maybe 20 years ago um then moving on from cannabis to another drug there's no evidence that you move from one to the next to the next there used to be a theory that well you know you got bored of it or the effects didn't work Mm -hmm. anymore so you had to try something stronger it's, it's kind of rubbish, really. Um, okay. People tend to move within types of effects. People will have an effect of choice. In the same way as I'm sure you've got a, a wine or a gin of choice that, mm-hmm. that you like. Yeah. And we'll move within that choice. So, you know, somebody who likes gin will try different gins. And I like real ale, so I'd rather drink water than a pint of lager. And it's the same for drug users. So drug users who like stimulants, so speed, ecstasy, if they got some extra cash, will probably try a bit of cocaine. Those kind of so they would move within effect groups, but they are no more likely to try heroin than Joe Blobs on the street. So they largely move within effect groups. We've people develop a taste for an effect, and they might move within that group. And cannabis or weed or marijuana whatever we want to call it is really chemically complex and there's kind of nothing else that does what weed does there's kind of nothing else out there that does it really they don't necessarily move from that there would be a school of thought that says if you are already and when this would be true if you're already engaged in buying or procuring an illegal drug of some kind you're more likely to come into contact with other illegal drugs than somebody who doesn't. Okay. But just because you're more likely to come into contact with it, I mean, I'm sure you come into contact with lots of different alcohol and you mm. don't walk down the street thinking, I'll have to try that one. When we've been going out for walks, Max has asked a lot, we find these little canisters. Yes. Uh, which contain, I think it's laughing gas. I yeah. don't know the, the yeah. science term for it. Um, and he'll ask me what they are. And, and I'm honest with them in what they are. Mm. And they're everywhere. Yeah, they are, And yeah. it's clear that, that kids are meeting up in groups and, and taking this stuff, and it's readily available to buy off Amazon. I mean, how do you manage something like that? It, kind of, it was really interesting. It kind of came out of left field, that one. I didn't see that one coming. I went to a festival called Secret Garden Party. It was down in Cornwall. And uh, they had a tent where you went in and, and kind of... It was like going into one of those opium bars in in Thailand. And it was all there. And it, I, I was really interested. What do I think about it? Uh, it's not great putting gas into you. You know, there's no doubt about that. However, it is far, far less hazardous 
than the kind of butane that we saw high levels of. So there was a point when solvents we used to, as we used yeah. to call them, but glue and yeah. butane and those kind of things. The level of, of child death around those things was horrifying, really horrifying. And it's definitely safer than sticking butane gas down your throat. I mean, those small canisters mm. uh, at least have a, a level of dose control with them. So, you know, the, the risk of overdose is less. We do see the occasional, we do see it go wrong occasionally. And sometimes you get bubbles in the blood, you know, the, the gas rate in the blood can cause difficulties. Mm. There is a drive in adolescence to alter our sense of consciousness, to find ways to, to you know, why do we have all these high risk behaviours, you know, mm. that our risk perception in adolescence is, is neurologically dampened. Um, you know, quite often as young children, they have a really amplified sense of risk perception. Uh, and in adulthood, one hopes that we're reasonably balanced in our risk perceptions. But adolescents, neurologically, their risk perception is, is suppressed. So they are more likely to engage in what we might perceive as high-risk behaviours. Nitrous oxide, that's what it is. I've right. been trying to yeah. pull it from my brain. So Hans Christian Andersen was really into nitrous oxide. They used to take it... That makes it. sense. <laughs> when you read your stories. Yeah. They used to tape up all the windows and doors and, put, and pump the nitrous oxide into the room. Some wow. Of the, some of the Lakeland poets were into it as well. Wow. Um, Keats, I think, probably. Or maybe yeah. it was Coleridge, actually. No, maybe it was Coleridge Goodness that was me. into it. So, again, it's been around for a very long time. It comes and goes in fashion. It's fashionable at the moment because you can buy it from Amazon. I think that that's probably, you know, there was a time when you could buy the mushrooms that they've now changed in legal status and you can't buy those now. There were some of those legal highs that they changed to become new and novel psychoactive substances is what we're supposed to call them now. And they've changed the way that the law works. So it used to be that something came onto the market and until they'd done all of the research to identify something in it that potentially was illegal, would they make it illegal? So we would see large amounts of quite significant different types of drugs being uh, available. They changed the law so as they can be made illegal immediately while they undergo testing. So the access to those has been limited quite significantly now. What would your advice be to me, a mum of 11-year-old who's just gone into secondary school, so he's just starting this trajectory of education mixed with being invited to parties and letting him have his adolescence, if you like, yeah. but keeping safe and mindful at the same time without fighting against a mum who's stringently... Anti-drugs. Anti-drugs. <laughs> and I, 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 don't, I don't want to come across like I'm anti-drugs in if you do that you'd be mm. kicked out i want to get the balance right i want to approach this right so i think there are a couple of, i mean even the young ones i mean it it's in it's in the curriculum yeah. so for younger children the idea that all medicines are drugs but not all drugs are medicines is a really useful concept for them to be able to understand process and have a language to talk about those mm. things i've seen mummy drinking all of those things um, yes. are just really useful for them to think about. As they get older, the idea that those drugs that aren't medicines may well be available to people, but we need to be really careful if we come into contact with them and think really carefully before we make any decision. If a child 
is given plenty of opportunity to to explore risk and be adventurous they're less likely to be i suppose seduced by uh the more internal adventurous behavior Um, so you think you'd say the more they are exposed to it in a controlled yeah i think so and they have the the strength or the opportunity confidence to say no or yes but the more they see it the more they can make their own choices they can make their and it's really important because they're going to make those choices anyway yeah when they need to make those choices for themselves they need to have all the information available to them if they're worried about it they need to know that they can talk to you without you going off the deep end about it and there will be a hedonistic period of time in adolescence it's really important in terms of forming character and personality clarity of self you know in our adolescence it's when we really discover who we are what what our own values are because up until that point their values what they believe will be inherited from their parents from you yeah you know i vote labor or tory or whatever because that's what mum and dad do or or so all of those values will have been inherited and then in adolescence we begin to explore them it's that point in our lives where we need to find role clarity that sets us on a trajectory for the future. And that will include a lot of hedonism Mm. and a lot of risk-taking and engaging in all kinds of experiences that we'll probably never do again in adult life, but we'll love during adolescence. But that's kind of part of finding role clarity in, in adolescence. It's really, really important. That's brilliant, really brilliant. Looking at older teens and, you know, nightclubs and, and, and cocaine is more available now than it mm, ever was. And it's, and it's cheaper than it ever yes. was, therefore making it more accessible. You know, you get that really difficult age, sort of 17, 18, 19, 20, where self-confidence may be low, are doubting in themselves. And suddenly their friends are doing cocaine because it might be seen as like a, a champagne drug, a cool drug. It's not something you necessarily get. You don't get addicted to cocaine like you do heroin. But what you do get addicted to is the feeling that it gives you and the confidence it gives you. The buzz of turning into somebody that you are desperately trying to be. And that's addictive in itself. What advice can you give around that as a, as a parent trying to and, and advice to a teen who sure. may be feeling that at the minute? I think two things. Drugs aren't addictive. Mm, no okay. drugs are addictive. Drugs don't have a moral will. Mm. Yeah, They're not addictive or not addictive. The experience yes. and the effect of substances can be something that can be quite compulsive and, and addictive. So we, we develop addictive behaviours but it's not the drugs, it's us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important. There's uh, Maybe this is a bit of a hangover from those kind of 1980s, 1990s campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit like, um, I suppose, nicotine isn't addictive. Smoking is addictive. Yeah. It's the act. The act, the behaviour is addictive, mm-hmm. not the substance itself. Otherwise, we're able to separate ourselves and our own vulnerabilities from the, well, it's not my fault, it's, you know, it's not my fault that heroin is. Um, actually, when it comes to heroin, I would say that cocaine is more habit forming than heroin. Wow. And is a lot easier to form a habit with than heroin. Gosh. Um, 
and the thing about cocaine is it works. That's the other that's the other side, isn't it? You take it and you get what you wanted from it. So the positive experience is is self fulfilling in lots of ways. Um, what we know from all of the research around what makes a difference um, is a relationship. This is all about how we relate to other people. When you when people were followed up that had serious cocaine and crack problems that had fully recovered from any of those, um, you know, what was the one factor that made a difference to them? It was a safe, stable, predictive, predictable relationship, an intimate relationship that made a difference. Now, for a child, that might be a parent, or, or for the older teens, it might actually be, you know, uh, their first kind of longer-term relationship. But it will be the connection to another. Uh, I think in lots of ways... What you described about the the low self-esteem, the poor self-image young person, that is the point in life where we are more vulnerable to substance misuse and developing problematic behaviours. And I guess what we need to do is, is raise people's awareness of we are more vulnerable at these times. These times when we struggle to find our role clarity, who we are, you know, and how we present to the world in a way that we're happy with, that's the time that we are vulnerable to developing problematic patterns of substance misuse. Yeah, I would agree. Tony, it's just been brilliant speaking to you. I could let this go on for days talking to you, and it's been a real pleasure meeting you. So thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. No problem. Always full of information, Tony. Absolutely fantastic. So I'm going to end by asking you both a question that I ask people who come on my podcast. What's a courageous thing that you've done in your life? Oh, wow. I think the, the greatest amount of courage I've ever had to access is probably to be comfortable enough to be vulnerable with another person. That's brilliant. Can you think of a time when it was excruciating? All the time. I'm quite avoidantly attached, so I would like everybody to think that I don't need anybody, thank you very much, and I'll do it all on my own. So just to be vulnerable in the presence of another every day takes courage for me to do. I would say mine's very similar to that, actually, where I certainly have battles with with self-esteem. I think my most courageous thing has been dealing with my mental health issues and taking control of them and accessing health when I've really needed it and putting my hands up and saying I can't actually do this by myself so whether it's the support of my parents my family or my husband that's definitely been the most courageous thing I think I've ever done and a lot of it was forced by people telling me that I needed to get a handle on various things or uh, pushed into a situation but moving forward just how far I've come and that's been with the support of others Ooh. but but I've had to drive that myself and, and that's the most courageous thing I've ever done and I feel quite proud of where I'm at now yeah wow very very honest answers yeah. do you love that one by Charlie Mackesy with the horse and the boy brilliant it's isn't the it? bravest things yeah. to ask for help yeah 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 thank you both so much what a great conversation they had and so honest too we could go on all day couldn't we 
I've popped the salient points on my blog this week, so if you're out jogging or driving or you've got your hands full, there are some backup notes there for you, as well as Tony's contact details, which are also in the show notes. If you enjoy the podcast, can I ask you a great favour? Will you rate and review it for me? Five stars always helps. In fact, it helps other parents to find it. And pop it across to your friends. The better that parents are supported and helped, the better it is for our children. I'm not public speaking at the moment due to COVID, but I do see clients privately, mostly over Zoom at the moment. So do get in touch if you'd like to chat through an issue, big or small. You can find me on Instagram, The Courageous Mama, or on my blog, surprisingly, The Courageous Mama, and by email, madelinestanny at icloud.com. I love hearing from you, so do ping me your stories, your victories, your challenges, and your requests. And those links are all in the show notes. So thank you for joining me this week. I love doing this journey with you. I'm so grateful to Tony for his insights this week and for his honesty there at the end of the podcast. A courageous dad. And also a massive thanks to my friend George for stepping into this big issue with me and daring to be vulnerable. That's one courageous mama. Enjoy, connect, pass it on. I'll see you next week.